You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Bible Church of Paragool. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagool.com. We're in a series we've entitled The Way, where we're learning together what it means to practice the ways of Jesus. And over the last several weeks, we've been talking specifically about how we can be transformed more into the image of Jesus, how we can go from looking uh, uh, unintentionally, being formed more and more to look like the world, to intentionally being transformed by Jesus to look more like Jesus. And I'm going to put a diagram on the screen for you. We've put this up uh, several weeks, a little triangle with the, uh, do we have that on there? There it is, yeah. So what we've talked about so far to this point is that if we are going to be transformed more into the image of Jesus, we need to be people who are sitting under gospel-centered teaching, coming to things like this, getting involved in a missional community, a fight club, where we're being reminded of who God is, what he's done for us in Christ, and how that changes now who we are and how we are to live. And because information itself does not equal transformation, but the application of information equals transformation. We want to practice the ways of Jesus. Um, This may seem a little bit simple, but it's really profound. If you want to live like Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Uh, What you see Jesus doing, you have to put into practice. So Jesus would pray. We should pray. He fasted. We should fast. He read scripture, right? He shared his faith. He stepped out in in, in faith, right? I mean, we need to also put these things in to practice. And of course, this happens as we are living in the context of community through the power of the Holy Spirit. And over time, through the hard knocks of life, we will be transformed more into the image of Jesus from the inside out. Now, last week we talked about community. Next week I'm going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? Uh, what role does he play in our lives and our transformation? But today I want to focus a little bit more on community. And here's what I want you to see. Um, Ryan, do we have that image? I know we sent it to you late. A little drawing. Okay. So uh, thank you, Lene Fields. I don't know if you're in here, and Robbie Fowler. I don't know if you're here, but thank you so much for helping me get this together. Lene actually drew this for me. Um, so here's the deal. When you step into community, you pretty much, all of us in here, start at a place that I would call Happy Hill, right? And that's a place where we say, man, this is a lot of fun, right? It's like, you're awesome. I'm awesome. Let's be awesome together, right? It's like, everybody's new. We're getting to know each other. We're like, wow, like, I didn't know you ran an Ironman. That's incredible. I didn't know you were a teacher. I'm a teacher. Wow, your dad's from Texas. My dad's from Texas, right? It's just a lot of fun. We have a good time. We look forward to the next MC meal, but because everybody in your community is a sinner just like you, eventually there's the letdown. And eventually, every single one of you, if you get involved in community, will have to enter through what I call Crappy Valley. And in Crappy Valley, that's where you go from saying, man, this is fun, to thinking, man, this stinks, right? Like that guy who I thought was so spiritual was actually really arrogant, right? Or that woman that I thought was so humble is really dramatic and really needy or really annoying. And this person, they're always blowing up my group me account. And this person, they're always dominating prayer requests. And this person, they never bring food when they come to MC me or what. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So in this part of the community, you go from saying, man, I can't wait for the next family meal to saying, oh man, crap, it's another family meal that's coming up. And I don't really want to go to that. What excuse do I have to get out of that, right? And so this is the point where most of us, right, if you can be honest, you kind of want to hit the eject button on a community, right? Because you're tired of dealing with their crazy kids on top of your crazy kids, and you're tired of hearing, you know, all the blah, 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 all this kind of stuff, right? 
It's so easy to, at this point to say, you know what, I, I hear the pastors talk about community and all of that, but I'm just going to show up at the Sunday gathering and just be done with it from there on out. But what you need to see is that ultimately, if we want to be transformed more into the image of Jesus, we have to get up to Family Mountain. Uh, we have to move beyond superficial, surface-level relationships. We have to learn how to deal with sin, of the sin of others and the sin of ourselves, in a healthy way so that we can begin to climb, so that we can begin to experience authentic, deep, life-giving relationships that transform us more into the image of Christ. And you see, the problem is I think most of us have no clue how to do that well. For most of us in here, when someone sins against us, the temptation is fight or flight. It's fight, like I'm going to put you on blast on Facebook. Or I'm going to gossip about you behind your back. Or flight to where it's like, oh, hey, God bless you, I love you. But inside you're really thinking, God, I hate your guts, I never want to see you again, right? It's like, or like you ignore them when you see them like out in the foyer or maybe at Walmart. Like you see them down an the aisle and you're like, oh, go down the next aisle, right? Or whatever, that's our temptation. But again, if we are going to be a community that transforms each other more in the image of Jesus, you have to come to the reality that everybody in here, including you, is a sinner. And if we don't learn how to deal with that in each other, we're never going to really be transformed. Does that make sense? So today, that's what I'm going to focus on. Fun times, right? Like, if it's your first time, welcome. Glad you can be here. You picked a great Sunday. James chapter 5, verse 19 through 20. This is where we're going to start. I'm going to read uh, several different places in Scripture, but... We'll use this as kind of a springboard into the sermon. My brothers or my sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. And he will cover a multitude of sins. I want to pray for you one more time and I ask that you pray for me. Father, it is so easy for me um, to busy myself to death with good stuff so that I don't even have to focus on the junk inside of my own heart. And yet your word tells me that that junk that often I can make excuses for, um, it's stuff that can kill me, that can rob me of the life and the joy and the peace that you have created me to experience with you. And I know that, Father, this is true of my life, it's true of all of us in here. We all have issues in our lives that need to be confronted with your truth so we can experience the life you've created us to experience. Would you please teach us how to be a community that truly cares so well for each other, that we're willing to have uncomfortable conversations, that we're willing to step out in faith and help pull others back in to walk in the way that you have created for us. Holy Spirit, right now, would you please do what only you can do through this text? I pray for someone that's here today right now who actually doesn't even know you, that today that will change and that they will be converted and that they will become your disciples. Encourage us all through the text, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I was in Raleigh, North Carolina earlier this week, and um, I was there for a lead pastor cohort that I was invited to be a part of, and, and um, which, by the way, if I seem a little tired or off today, on Wednesday, I was supposed to fly out of Charlotte at uh, 7.45 p.m. I actually didn't get to fly out until 2 a.m., 
And so I got back to Paragould in my bed at 4.30 a.m. in just enough time for my nine-week-old to start crying and wanting food. And so I didn't sleep at all then. And, like, my, my son's got a cold. And so, like, I'm still trying to catch up on sleep. And so I just say, that, say, please feel sorry for me. Pray for me. Show me grace. If this is totally bombs today, okay? And so... Um, so anyways, I, I'm in North Carolina, and on Wednesday, I had to catch an Uber to uh, the airport in Raleigh, and my Uber driver, to make a long story short, he uh, was a former Marine and was deployed three times, and the last time he was deployed, he was in Afghanistan, and I got talking to him, and he was in this region, I think it was, uh, how did he say, I think it's called like the Sanjin region or Sangin region of Afghanistan, which apparently is one of the most hostile regions of Afghanistan. And so I'm talking to him, I, I love talking to, to, to veterans about their service and thank them for what they've done. And so I'm asking him questions, and he was telling me, he said, man, I was over in this part of Afghanistan for nine months, and there was not one day that went by that we did not have a firefight. He said, literally, the enemy was relentless. And because of that, we lost 43 men in my unit, two of them being my best friends. And he begins to talk about just how every day, he's like, man, I was just sure it was going to be the last day. I just actually, I didn't even fear death anymore. It's like, I'm going to die. I might as well just accept it. And so he's talking about this. And I was like, man, how did you keep your morale up? Like, how did you continue to fight and, and, and give yourself like this day after day when you were just around so much death? I'll never forget what he said. He looked right at me and said, man, it was easy. Because the guys I was fighting with, that's my brothers. He said, that was my family. And he said, in fact, like my last deployment, I received a Purple Heart because I was shot. Literally, the bullet went in the leg and out of the leg. And he said, I'm sitting there bleeding. Not once, he said, honestly, not once did I think, man, I've got to try to stay alive. I thought to myself, I've got to get up so I can make sure my brothers are able to stay alive. I've got to go after them to make sure they don't die. And as I began to think about that this past week, I thought, man, that should be the posture of the church. And that is what James is hitting on right here when he says, when you see your brother in sin or when you see your sister in sin, you need to realize they are on a dangerous path that could lead them to death. And therefore, you should want to do whatever you can to rescue them. He says, you need to realize today, if you have a brother or sister that you see that is living in sin, that is not practicing the way of Jesus, he says your job is not simply to sit there and go, oh, isn't that a pity or shame on you. But he said your job and your heart should be to go into the fire for the purpose of, full, of pulling them out before they are consumed. If you were here this morning and you are not a disciple of Jesus, I'm so glad you're here today. I really am. I hope you keep coming. When you show up here each week, listen, here's what you're going to hear. You're going to hear me or Adam or someone else passionately proclaiming for you to follow Jesus. And you know why we're so passionate about this? Because following Jesus is not just the, 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 the difference between right and wrong. It's the difference literally between life and death. Literally. Right? That's why this is so incredibly important. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, there are two paths. Two paths in the world. Every single one of us are on one of two paths. So the first path is the broad path. It's the broad way. And he says many people will find it. It's popular. It's the path many of your friends will be on. It's the path many of your family will be on. It's going to be a fairly easy path, probably even a fairly fun path. But in the end, Jesus says in Matthew 7, it leads to death. But then there's another path. He says it's a narrow path. Few will find it. It's difficult. It's not easy. It's not cool. But if you will stay on it, in the end, it leads to life. That's what the whole Bible is about, by the way. The whole Bible is not a book of rules, right? The Bible is not, rules about, not about rules to be followed. It's about a life to be found. 
And it's about a life that's found ultimately in Jesus. And that's why we passionately proclaim his gospel each week. That's why James here says, again, if you see your brother or sister living in sin, it's like watching your kids playing in the middle of a busy intersection. It's like watching them play in a road that literally, if they do not get out of, eventually they will be crushed. And therefore, you need to be urgent. You need to be loving. You need to do whatever you can to go after them to rescue their souls. Question is this morning is how do we do that? How do we do that? What in the world does that look like? If you see your brother or sister in sin, how do we do this well so that we can be a healthy community that builds each other up so that we can be conformed more into the image of Christ? Unfortunately, Jesus answers the question for us. So if you will, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put it on the screen for you. Matthew chapter 18. Jesus is talking here to his disciples, and he's specifically talking about what do you do if you see a brother or sister who is in sin? What do you do about it? And here's what he says. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your what sins against you, what's the word? If your brother sins against you. Before I go any further, I just want to draw out the fact the church, once again, is a family. If you are a child of God and I'm a child of God, that makes us brothers or makes us sister, brother and sister, right? We are family. So here's what that means. When you see someone in your missional community or in this church in sin, you should not handle it like a business. You should not handle it like the court. You should handle it like a loving, healthy family. Okay? If your brother sins against you, And by the way, in the New American Version, which is the most literal translation to the original Greek, it just says, if your brother sins. Not just against you, but if your brother or if your sister sins. Here's what he says next. You go to your brother. Notice he doesn't say, if your brother or sister sins, you call the pastor. You don't email me. Okay? You don't go to someone else and share a prayer request. Which is really gossip fest, right? Which, by the way, if anybody ever does that, they say, hey, I should tell you something about someone real quick. And I just want you to do this to pray for them. Say, whoa, 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 have you gone to them first? You should stop them right there. Don't get pulled into their sin. If your brother sins, you go to your brother. Notice it doesn't say you text your brother. It doesn't say you message your brother on Facebook. You go to your brother, you go to your sister, and you have a face-to-face conversation. And when you go, this is not coming like confrontation, bowed up on them like what? You know, like what you're going to do about it. It's like you go to them in humility, and you go to them to say, look, brother, because I love you. Sister, because I love you. Because I know the man, I know the woman that you want to be. I'm looking at your life and what you say you believe and what you're actually doing doesn't match up. And because I love you, I want to call you to turn from that and to trust in Jesus. And I want to help you get there. That's the posture that we are to take. And what Jesus says here in verse 15, if you do this and your brother listens to you, you've gained a brother. Mission accomplished. Right, You have saved him from death and a multitude of sins. But, he says, verse 16, if he doesn't listen. He says, you take two or three more with you. Now, why in the world would you take two or three more with you? 
Right? Why is Jesus just like, you know, he wants you to gang up on him? Is it like you call him and like, hey, I just want to watch the game with you. No, just you and me. Come on over. But really you have two or three people like hidden out. And they walk in and you're like, get them. You know, like ambush. Like, is that the whole point? Like, no. He says you get two or three others so that you have witnesses. So that you can have other people who are stepping into their lives and saying, hey, we agree with our brother. We agree with our sister. Like, what you're doing is not right. You are not practicing the way of Jesus. You are not following after him. Because we love you, we want to call you to repent and to trust in him. Right? That's what Jesus says that we are to do. Now, he begins to turn up the the, the heat a little more because he says, right, if he still doesn't listen, verse 17, then what do you do? Who do you tell it to next? You tell it to the church. Now, what in the world does that mean? Does that mean that whenever Luke gives announcements on Sunday that he comes up here and he says, okay, announcement number one, we have a children's meeting scheduled right after this. Children, uh, announcement number two, Jack slept with Jill's sister. Uh, he didn't repent, so just want to let y'all know. Right? Is that what he's saying? No. Jesus is not saying you just go and like put everybody else's business out there for all of you who might not even know Jack. What he's saying, when Jesus says, tell it to the church, he's saying, tell it to the people who are most being the church to this individual. For us, in our context, the way we take that and the way it plays out is we would tell it to our missional community. You would tell it to the people within an MC who know this person, who are doing life with this person, so that now, right again, you're turning the heat up a little bit. It's not just one person going and saying, you're wrong, and you need to repent. It's not just two or three. It's now maybe 10, 12, 15 people who are all going and saying, brother, we love you, we love you, please, like, quit living this way, stop walking down this path. And then Jesus says, and if they still don't listen after this, verse 17, look what he says, this is very interesting, then you treat this person as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, in this culture, what that would mean to the people that were hearing this, you treat them as people who are outside of the kingdom of God. You say, hey, man, I know you said you prayed a prayer at Vacation Bible School and that you're saved, but you just didn't realize um, that's probably not the case. You look at them and say, I know you claim to be a disciple, but, but just judging a tree by its fruit, uh, you're not a disciple. He says, you treat them as someone who is outside of the kingdom of God. In other words, you remove them from the community that would be considered the church. Now, if that seems a little harsh, go with me to Corinthians chapter Five, And even if it doesn't seem harsh to you, still go to Corinthians chapter 5. Okay? Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. This is the last place I'm going to have you turn to. And I'm guessing the majority of you in here have probably never heard anybody preach on this passage before. So, um, yeah, let's dive into it together. Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthian church. And the Corinthians have gone wild. Here's what Paul says in his letter. It is actually, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. You know it's gotten bad, but even the pagans are like, dude, that church, those are some sickos over there, man. There's a sexual morality among you um, and of a kind that is not even tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. I don't know if that's, that dude's sleeping with his mom or his stepmom. Whatever it is, it's wrong. And it should not be tolerated. And yet, Paul says in verse 2, And you are arrogant, church. Ought you not rather to mourn? 
Let him who has done this, look at this, be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I'm present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now what in the world is Paul talking about here? Deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his... I mean, is this really in the Bible? Is this like, does he literally mean deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh? What's going on here? Well, there's, there's several opinions from several different scholars, and I'm going to share mine because it's the right one. Here's what, I, here's what I believe is happening here. In verse 5, when Paul says, deliver him over for the destruction of his flesh, the word for flesh in the Greek is the word sarx. And it actually represents the part of your body, the part of your being that is turned inward towards what is evil and what is wrong. It's the part of your body that says, I'm not going to follow after Jesus. I'm going to follow after my own way. In light of this, what Paul is saying here is when someone continues to live in sin, listen guys, when someone continues to live in habitual, unrepentant sin, you've gone to him with one, you've gone with two or three others, you've told it to the MC, and they still continue to live in this way. He says, eventually, you set them outside the church, you set them outside the protection of this community in hopes that Satan will so wreck his life that he will, in desperation, turn to Christ. And he says what at the end of verse 5? And his spirit will be saved on the day of the Lord. That's the purpose of all of this. is to inflict a little pain in the temporary to save him from much greater pain for an eternity. That's the whole point. Some of you guys, you need to hear this today. Romans chapter 1 is one of the most scariest chapters in the entire Bible. Because here's what Romans 1 says. If you this morning are sitting here in unrepentant sin, I don't know what it is. Your spouse don't know what it is. Your fight club doesn't know what it is. You know what it is. The worst thing God could do is nothing at all. The worst thing God could do is let you continue in your life as a very successful man. Good, good old boy, good old gal thinking all is well, while your sin remains unchecked and unabated, and eventually you wake up in hell. God's mercy on your life is to bust you in your sin. God's mercy on your life is to wreck your life in such a way that in desperation you turn to Christ where only true hope is found. This is what Paul is getting at here. He says, the whole point of everything I'm talking about here is if you go to this person over and over and over and they continue to live in sin, continue to, to walk in a way opposite to the way of Jesus, he says, you do whatever it takes, not for the purpose, listen, not for the purpose of shaming them, but for the purpose of saving them. He says, you set them outside the church if you have to for the purpose of shocking them into reality so they turn towards Jesus and then experience the life that they were created to experience. And you know, guys, if you have children, sometimes this kind of thing, you have to turn up the heat, don't you? You have to. I mean, I'm thinking about, um, BJ, I've just seen you, thinking about y'all's story, you and Brooke. Many of you guys are familiar with Brooke and BJ's story. If you're not, get on our website and, and, and watch the video on their story. I mean, they had a whole past of addiction, of burning bridges, 
of hurting their own family, their own children because of their addiction. And Brooke, she'll tell you that one of the reasons they stayed in their addiction for so long is because she had a father that he didn't mean to, but he would basically enable their problems. Brooke said, I, became, I came to a point where I thought, you know what, I can pretty much do whatever I want. I can get busted and daddy's going to bail me out. Just this unlimited supply of grace and mercy and all these resources. And so I can do whatever I want. Everything's going to be okay. And what they will both tell you is whenever Jesus finally met them is whenever Brooke's father said, I'm leaving you in prison. I'm not getting you back out. Because it was in that moment in desperation, they had nowhere to turn but to Jesus. And that's the moment that they became Christians. That's the moment they were redeemed. And as a result, they sit here today. They had the Spirit of God. They got their children back. They got reconciled to their family. Right? They're able to be a blessing to others. But they had to hit rock bottom. They had to have everything stripped away from them. And this is what Paul is getting at. He's saying, look, I know it's hard. I know it's hard. But do you realize the worst thing you can do for someone who's continuing in sin, just say, it's cool, brother. We all fall short of the glory of God. It's cool, sister. It's all grace. We all know I'm not perfect. Who am I to judge? I know this is hard, guys, but do you realize when you let your brother or sister continue in sin, it not only is deadly to the sinner, but to the whole community. That's what Paul goes on to say. I mean, look how serious this is. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. You're not that great of a church. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. The modern translation of that is, do you not realize that just a little bit of cancer, if you don't deal with it, can actually kill your whole body? He's saying, do you not realize that cancer, it's going to grow, that sin is going to grow and it's going to spread and therefore can take down the entire body if you just like let it go? That's what he's saying. I remember when I was in eighth grade, my dad had a little lump come up on his neck. And, and like all men, he's like, ah, you know, no big deal. You know, just a lump, big deal. Right? Lumps grow all the time, surely. And so like, but he didn't go to the doctor and, and more lumps come up, more lumps come up. Eventually he goes to the doctor. I'm in eighth grade. It's my 14th birthday. We get a call from the hospital. It says, come, in, come to find out he had stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Cancer had taken over his whole body. Because it's just a small lump. Because they had to take six different kinds of chemo. To do whatever they could to kill the cancer before it killed him. And what Paul is saying with sin, it's just as serious. In fact, more serious because we're not just talking about a physical death. We're talking about an eternal death here. And so you need to take this seriously. And you need to do whatever you can to help kill the sin before the sin kills us. Paul goes on. He says something that I think is absolutely... You're going to probably think it's insane whenever you first read it. And I'm guessing most of you probably never memorized this verse before, but it's in the Bible. He says this, if you want to know how serious all this is, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter, apparently he had written up my letter before, and he said, I wrote in my letter, hey, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers, which is a word we should use more often, I think, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. I love that. He's like, hey, you remember me telling you, like, don't hang out with sexually immoral people? Just to be clear, I'm not saying, like, don't hang out with lost people. Because if you did that, you'd have to get out of the world. You'd have to, like, climb up in a tree and just kind of like, make your own jam and wait for Christ to return. He's like, I'm not saying that, right? He's saying, hang out with lost people. Hang out with sexually immoral lost people and, and swindlers and idolaters, people who don't know Jesus. How are they going to know about Jesus if you don't hang out with them? So be a missionary. Be in the world. He's like, hang out with those folks. But then look what he says. Look what he says in verse 11. I'm not telling you don't hang out with lost people. Here's what I'm telling you not to do. 
don't associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater or reviled or drunk or something like that, don't even eat with such a person. Do you have any idea what he just said? He says, if your lost neighbor is acting like a lost neighbor, befriend them. If your church member is acting like a lost person, defriend them. Do you see anything different? Anybody see a different translation? He says, if you have a lost neighbor who isn't following Jesus, you should build a relationship towards them and help disciple them towards Christ. But if you have someone in the church who claims to be a Christian but is intentionally, listen, keep hearing this, guys, don't miss this, intentionally choosing not to follow Jesus, I know what he says and I don't care. Get them out of the community. Don't even eat with them. That's harsh. Hey, brother, this is so-and-so. I just want to see if you want to grab coffee. Brother, I love you, but we can't go grab coffee. There's something serious on the table right now. I can't just go shoot the breeze with you whenever I know your soul's in jeopardy. If you want to get together and talk about that, we'll talk about that, but I can't just get together and watch a game with you. Some of you are like, man, this seems a little extreme. Yeah, it is extreme. Sin is extreme. Have you looked at the cross? It took the death of God's Son to make things right. We need to hear this today because, man, I think in the, in, in the religious South, we are so worried. We think, you know what's going to crush our community? ISIS. Those liberals. But what does Paul say? He actually says, you know what? The, the biggest threat to the church is not people outside the community. It's people inside the community. He says, the biggest threat to Fellowship Bible Church is not the man who's sitting drunk at the bar right now. It's the fake Christian who's sitting in the church right now. He says, that is the biggest threat to this community. It's whenever you have someone in here who is living in sin and nobody cares at all. That is what will crush this. That's what's going to keep any of us from ever being conformed more into the image of Jesus. Guys, I know this whole membership renewal deal for some of you has been like, God, this has been so heavy. Please understand, this is the whole reason we've done it. The whole reason that we're doing membership renewal this year is because as pastors, we love you too much to just us all hang out with no gospel intentionality whatsoever. You've heard me say it before, I'll say it again. I am, and you can check me on this, I will never call you to anything more than Christ called you to, but I'm also not going to call you to less either. And some of you maybe, you know, you hear that and you think, well, Jared, I thought you said fellowship's a place where it's okay to not be okay. It is. But it's not okay to want to stay there. It's not okay to just live in sin and be like, ah, you know, grace will prevail. If that's the way you think it works, you don't know grace. You don't understand. You do not know grace. And I'm not saying today, listen, to be clear that when you start following Jesus, that your transformation and your growth will just look like this. The reality is it'll look more like this. You're going to have dips. You're going to have valleys. You're going to make mistakes. We're all going to sin. We're all going to fall short at times. But here's the point. You're still moving towards Christ. You're still following him. And if there comes a point where you turn and go the other way, we should in love go and get you and bring you back. To say you're going the other way. 
And we love you too much to let you do that. Woe is us if we just throw this word aside this morning as if it doesn't matter. Guys, in, in Revelation chapter 2, 19 through 20, can we put that on the screen, Ryan? Yeah, okay, awesome. Look what Jesus says to an entire church. He says, I know your works, your love, and your faith, your servants, and your patient endurance, and that your later works exceed the first. This sounds like a great church to be a part of, doesn't it? But I have this against you, church, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Jesus just said, I have something against the entire church. You know what it is? That you have someone in your church living in sin and you're doing nothing about it. And I'm putting that on all of you. Paul goes on to say in verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? What's the answer to that, by the way? Nothing. What do I have to do with judging people outside of the church? You have nothing to do with that. Stop doing it. What do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church to whom you are to judge? What? God's going to judge those outside. You purge the evil person from among yourselves. I don't know where we got off track, but if we not reverse this in America, we love to beat up on everybody else outside of these walls, but we're cool, right? We get it. We got grace. That's why the church in America, 85, 90% of them are declining right now, and everyone feels judged by the church. The church has stopped being salt. It's stopped being light. We've reversed this. God says you don't judge people outside. You expect darkness to act like darkness. And let God, and I'm not saying you be cool with their sin. I'm not saying you be cool with the sins of others. And you don't pray for them and seek to minister to them. But it's not your job to go down there and start beating them up over those things. So you don't judge those outside the church. You judge those inside the church. Now, some of you immediately, because you read the Bible, you're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's a contradiction here with God's word. Jesus says in Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged. Ha! And I think Jesus is more spiritual than Paul, so I'll go with that. What is going on? Is there a contradiction? No. Context is important. The Bible's like real estate. Context, right? Location, location, location. You need to understand what's going on. When Jesus says in Matthew 7, judge not lest ye be judged, here's what he's talking to. He's speaking to religious hypocrites who are standing back and looking down at everyone else and going, ta-ta-ta. That's who he's talking to. Paul's not talking to people who are standing back going, uh-uh. He's talking to people who are standing back and saying, I don't love you enough to do anything about it. And he's saying, no, you do need to go to them. And you do need to go, not to condemn them, but to love them, to pursue them. He says, yes, you are to judge. But not for the purpose of just judging for the sake of judging, but judging for the sake of helping them get back on the path that they can experience true life. Now, enough on all that. Practically, what does this mean? for us as a church. I think three things, if we are, and I'll be done, let's be quick, three things, if we are going to be a community, a healthy community that's taking sin seriously so that we can be conformed more into the image of Jesus, there's three things we need to remember this morning. One is you cannot forget, we, church, are a family. We are a family. How in the world can you see a brother or sister in sin knowing that it can lead them to death and not care? 
Guys, is something not wrong in our hearts whenever we see? I mean, I'll, I'll just confess to you. I told my wife, I didn't hardly sleep at all Friday night. She was asking me, what's going on with you? And I said, honestly, I've been so convicted by this passage because I know there are some of you right now in here who are not following Jesus, and it's almost like I've been flipping about it, like, ah, they'll come around at some point. God, what's wrong? When your heart can get that hard that you don't see a brother or sister or someone who's not following Jesus and be like, ah, you know, they'll get out of the street eventually. I'm sure cars will dodge them. Why, what is I've shared this story with you guys before, but I'll share it again. Whenever I was in ninth grade, my brother had a seizure. Some of you remember me telling this. And, and he went underwater. He was in the bathtub. My mom woke me up, and she's like, your brother's dying. He's dying. He's dying. I'm in ninth grade. I get up. I go into the bathtub. He's blue. He's underwater. I pick him up, and I just begin CPR him immediately. And I'm pounding on his chest. Don't die. You know, I'm yelling at him. I'm blowing in his mouth, right? All these things that would have typically been awkward and weird. I didn't care. I, would done, I wanted to do whatever I could to save my brother in that moment. Unfortunately, they had he set up and he sped out water and he's alive today and doing well. But I want you to imagine again, like in that moment, imagine if my mom came to me that morning and said, your brother's dying. And if I looked at her and I said, I've got 10 more minutes to sleep. Why are you waking me up? Imagine if I looked and I said, I'm not going in there. That's awkward. That's weird. Imagine if I said, you do it. You're his mom. You figure it out. You would have looked at it and said, dude, you've got to be one of the most cold-hearted men on the face of the earth. And yet, do you not realize we're doing that over and over and over? Every time we see a brother or sister in sin, and we're like, eh, pastor will take care of that one. Right? We are a family. And that means, guys, that's why it's so important. If you really do care for other people and you believe this word, we've got to move beyond a Sunday morning gathering. We've got to be plugged into missional communities. We've got to be in fight clubs. We've got to be in the lives of others so that we can see this stuff coming. I can fake it all day long here. I need people in my life to see stuff coming before I can even see it coming and say, brother, no, 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 no. Nope, we're not going to let you go that way. Guys, we have to take this seriously because we're family. Second thing I would say, we need to remember not only are we family, we need to remember this. The goal of community is not friendship, it's transformation. You need to remember that. You don't get into a missional community just because you're looking for friends. And friends are great, and I want you to develop friendships. But the goal of a missional community and being involved in a a church community is not just deep relationships for the sake of deep relationships. It's deep relationships for the purpose of transformation. Do you realize that whenever Jesus saves you, he wants to change you? He does. And that's not a bad thing. I love my kids like crazy. There's a lot of areas I want to see my kids change. Remember last week when I bragged on Nora for praying over Lucy whenever she hit her nose? Three hours after that, Nora broke Lucy's nose. She helped. She hit her in the face. So, I mean, you know. Because she got mad at her, right? Lucy took something of hers and she's like i'll get vengeance is mine says nora kate right and just hit her in the face i love my daughter i want that to change quickly it's the same thing with us god loves you jesus loves you but there are things in your life he wants to see change and community is the way one of the big ways that he's going to help change you through community third thing i would just say and and i'll be done is, listen, some of you in here, the majority of us in here are probably like more like grace, 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 preach more grace, preach more grace, preach more grace. But there's probably a handful of you that's like, finally, yes, come on now. I've been waiting to go after that sister or that brother in my MC, and now I got all the ammunition I need. Thank you. For Corinthians 5, James chapter 5, Matthew 18, I'm going with all of it, right? 
hey, uh, before you go point out the speck in your brother's eye, look at the plank in your own eye. Some of you, you are constantly looking at the sins of others, and you see a little speck in their eye and a speck in her eye, and you got a tree in your face. You need to deal with that before you go to other people and begin to point out all of their flaws. And this morning, that's the way I want to end. And a whole message that could be all about their sin, let's end with focusing on our sin.